How do applications for political asylum in the United States work in practice? Why is the US asylum system described as a broken system? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute's interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Basili Azino, a Syrian scholar and political refugee in the United States. Basidius Zeno is a visiting lecturer in political science at Amherst College in Massachusetts, specializing in comparative politics and contemporary political theory. An archaeologist by training who was born and raised in Syria, he arrived in the United States in 2012. Fearing imprisonment or worse if he returned, Zeno the following year applied to the U.S. government for political asylum. Earlier this month, he recounted this experience in a Washington Post opinion piece entitled, Trump may be gone, but the U.S. asylum system is still broken. Basidia Zeno, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. I'd like to begin by asking you about your personal experience. How did you end up, how did you end up in the United States? For those of us unfamiliar with the U.S. asylum process, how does it work? What are applicants required to do? Can they access support navigating the labyrinth of U.S. bureaucracy? Hi, Moeen. Thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about uh, this issue, especially in the light of what's going on around Afghanistan and the debate. Uh, so I... Uh, I came here a long time ago. I came here, uh, I landed on uh, August 2012, and I came with uh, my wife. Uh, so I had a visa to come to the, I wa before that I was doing my PhD in archeology span in Syria. And also I was uh, an active participant in the Arab Spring, like which was also unfolding in, in, in Syria, I was living in Damascus. Uh, then after July 2012, which is, uh, if you recall, the the uh, so-called uh, uh, the assassination of senior officers in the Syrian army, and then the that was the turning point, one of the many turning points in the context of the Syrian uprising. So I fled, and I already had a visa as a J2 scholar because my wife got a scholarship, and we came here together. Uh, so things weren't clear at all where. The situation would be uh, uh, going, um, and um, so so then I, I sought asylum after a few months uh, for, since I arrived in the United States. Mm -hmm. And and how does the process work exactly? So uh, I like most people knew about asylum like after in 2013, 14, 15, right? In 2012, I I even didn't know what asylum is. I never heard of the word. Uh, like I knew about basically Palestinian refugees uh, uh, in, in Syria and in, in, in neighboring countries, but, uh, and also Iraqi refugees where I had encountered with them in Damascus. But I didn't know uh, how the process would work, how you can end up as a refugee or uh, What's the meaning of refugee? All of that. So I learned that the 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 difficult way. So we have here to distinguish between two processes, or even three, that are uh, I think to to make it clear. Uh, a, a refugee, uh, like anyone who is being resettled in the United States, as around the debate around Afghanistan, Iraq in the past, 
uh, would be would go through a very lengthy process of vetting and multiple interviews, and the process will take between one year to up to five years. It depends where you are living in, in camps or other. But first, you have to be registered with the UNHCR, and then they will identify the United Nations agency. Refugee uh, Agency. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then they will agree with one of the major resettlement agencies in the United States, and then they will be flying with the approval of the State Department and others uh, and relocated in one of the uh, uh, hosting locations in the United States. So for asylum seekers, it's a different process. And you, asylum I'm sorry, seekers, you were already in the United States when you... I was already in the United States. No. So, so to seek asylum, you have to be uh, uh, on the American soil. You have to arrive to make the trip here. So there you isn't can't, a process you, that... Sorry, you can't apply for asylum in the United States no. if you're not in the country. Yeah. So no. let's say, uh, because uh, we... Uh, I, I receive this question frequently from Syrians who want to leave and others. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, there isn't such a process that go to the American embassy, let's say in Beirut and, and file your application. It, it doesn't exist or actually take shelter in the embassy. It doesn't exist this way. So you have to be here, but mm -hmm. there are two processes here. One called affirmative and one called defensive. Affirmative is like my case when I had a valid visa and you apply for asylum and you go through the USCIS, uh, United uh, States of Immigration, and uh, which is the, under the Department of Homeland Security. The Immigration uh, Service. Yeah, the Immigration yeah. Service. So under the uh, defensive is mostly those who are coming through the southern borders. So mm -hmm. they try to come through and, and apply for asylum there. And then the majority of them would be detained by the uh, uh, CPP and the Department of Homeland Security. And we know that's the most visible uh, issue on the southern border, first because of the number of people who are coming, and second, uh, because of the uh, uh, brutality that was manifested under Trump in particular, Cajun kids and others. Mm -hmm. uh, affirmative is more hidden, more subtle, lengthy, slow, and mostly invisible, and in many aspects, authoritarian, which I can basically explicate more during the, the conversation. And um, so um, wh where did you go? You go to the uh, US uh, CSIS to apply? Yeah. Do you go to the, and, and, and were you able to get legal assistance? Were there organizations or individuals who were able to guide you through this process or were you on your own? Yeah, th that's a great question, actually, because it's uh, uh, because uh, uh, at first you find you have to file an application called everyone has to find an application called uh, I five eight nine, which is application for asylum and for withholding of removal, and you have it's not a requirement, but it will increase your chances of actually having a strong case and not fell in the trap of, uh, uh, of uh, being manipulated by asylum officers, because actually through experience, through multiple interviews, and I can talk later that I did my field work around the same topic. Uh, so it's the, the point seems in the United States is actually to find any even typos, like to deter you from being becoming a refugee or a, an asylee. When you are granted, you will be called an asylee in the United States rather than actually accepting your case. So it's, they are finding any way to deny your case rather than any way actually to be convinced with, with the strength of your case. So uh, I will emphasize here three points. One is the application filing within one year, calendar year. 
and also setting the deadline is part of the uh, oh, sorry within year. one year of your arrival on US of soil. your arrival yeah and if so you don't instance, file within that year you're ineligible to apply ineligible so it used to be uh, you could have done uh, like a uh, exemption through actually lengthy process explaining why you didn't file asylum why for, for instance like many people were already in the united states when the arab spring unfolded right so they weren't they didn't land uh, in the united states within one year but actually they were here for a long time so they had to make uh, a case why they have been living in the united states for three four years and didn't seek asylum so this is why, however, Trump uh, uh, proposed actually denying anyone who didn't file within one year, like before, uh, it's called death to asylum. Uh, so I'm not going to go through details because there are many new nuances here. But uh, so one is filing application within the cal one calendar year, finding a good lawyer and actually having a strong case. However, uh, uh, these are none of these are guaranteed that your case will be approved uh, my case is one example that we can talk later about sure. uh, however uh, i didn't have any access to any uh, 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 like agency or, or pro bono lawyers or anything because we when we first arrived we were in athens ohio where my wife was doing her masters in, in at ohio university so we didn't have any basically support group around us, no pro bono, nothing. So I had to work for almost a, a year, seven months at Chipotle to save money actually to be able to afford the cost of paying for, for an attorney. Uh, that wasn't the case though in metropolitan city. During my field work, I interviewed many asylum seekers who were granted asylum. Some of them came after me, but actually they had support through human rights first, for instance, through care uh, as institutions. So uh, they found and uh, many pro bono uh, attorneys who are more readily available in areas like Washington DC, Virginia and, and California. So location also so, matters. Uh, oh yeah, matter a lot, yeah. In including in terms of approval rate of asylum cases, which is something else that is indicator of, uh, uh, of how the asylum work is, is, is really, it's not completely about your own case. <laughs> So in your Washington opinion piece, you wrote that in May of this year, you received mm -hmm. a rejection, uh, a rejection notice that was, in your words, and I'm quoting, Kafkaesque, riddled with mm -hmm. contradictions and outright falsehoods, end quote. Um, mm -hmm. Why did it take eight years for your application mm -hmm. to be processed? And why did you offer this assessment of your application's mm -hmm. rejection? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this is a very important question. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, my assessment is based on uh, two aspects. One is the my direct firsthand experience with the asylum system. Mm -hmm. And second is extensive field work with asylum seekers across the country. Uh, not just in, so I conducted my field work in, in Massachusetts, uh, in Washington, D.C., and in California, and also interviews with uh, uh, asylum seekers in, in Michigan, including actually multiple interviews with immigration attorneys. So to, give the, to get the perspective of experts as well as the lived experience of asylum seekers. So why I, I did this assessment? Um, so just to, uh, uh, I had very limited word uh, count, so I, uh, you can't fit the whole story. So the whole right. story is that I had my first asylum interview four years after I filed my asylum application. So in 2017? So 
2017, immediately after uh, Trump was uh, uh, became uh, as the president. So I, I, my body, my soul, my my family immediately uh, lived the impact of his brutality because of the uh, adversarial setting that was imposed on us. So the first interview uh, was in 2017, in March 2017, in Boston. Then they, uh, I, I will give you like I will answer the Kafka part through. Please do. And then they just, then they, uh, so they tried to frame me as a terrorist. <laughs> so that's the thing. Uh, it didn't work out because I had nothing to do. I was actually one of the few voices in Syria who advocated for uh, a peaceful transition and was against like uh, militarization and uh, the emergence of the uh, Free Syrian Army. Uh, which is different from civil, uh, like self-defense. I was against this kind of escalation. So uh, it, it didn't fit with them. So they tried to frame a normal taxi driver who drove me to Beirut as he could be like a terrorist. So which means like I found out later there is a, a clause that was imposed by uh, Bush, uh, which called material support of terrorism. So basically, let's say Moin and I are in a taxi uh, and then one of the taxi driver was de detained later. I gave him water or anything. like Or you paid for driver. the ride. <laughs> yeah, for you paid for the ride. So that could be considered as material uh, support of terrorism. Uh, uh, so which is nothing about your case, nothing about that, but it, they, it's, it's a system that uh, I, I'm not going to use jargon, but I, I found actually a gambling got it in, in a way that is inclusion through exclusion. So they will actually, uh, it's part of maintaining white supremacy and racialization through the lack of transparency, the lack of rights, uh, the reduction of uh, human beings who are coming from the global South into a mere uh, uh, subhuman waiting for the approval of the gatekeeper to let you in. And it's not about your case, like as a, uh, so I, I would reflect more about why is that. So then they, the asylum officer uh, didn't give us a decision, not six months, not a year. And then, so we had, I used many circles of uh, uh, connection to impose certain uh, power and leverage. Uh, I placed like over the last seven, eight years, 21 congressional inquiries. So if uh, people say, think, oh, he doesn't follow up. So sometimes they were citing national security and public safety. Sometimes they say they found uh, inconsistency. Sometimes they say, oh, it's under supervisory. And so all these generic uh, responses that doesn't but, give you anything. And, and you felt your application was um, being dealt with in a way to find a pretext for its rejection. Is, is that how I should understand it? Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and that will will become more documented and clear uh, when you read actually the notice of intent of denial, uh, and 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 then I, I will have uh, a couple of comments on that in particular. So uh, uh, the asylum officer didn't make a decision. Then after really pressure, they brought us for a second interview, like a year and a half after that, which was in October 2018. and we spent five hours each time, but this time actually wasn't about anything about the first asylum interview. It was mostly the most culturally prejudiced and ignorant question we ever received in our life. Like, why my name is my name? 15 minutes to explain that. Uh, what's the difference between Greek Orthodox and Rome Orthodox? Can you explain this difference? Like, like, it, like questions that you wouldn't expect actually that's part of the asylum. Or uh, like about language, about like nothing, like literally. 
And then uh, can you tell us how did you apply for your own passport and, and in detail, like how, what is the conversation that took place seven years ago and etc. Uh, uh, so, uh, and then they disappeared again. Uh, so multiple inquiries, no response whatsoever. So we had to file something, the only legal way to force the USCIS to make a decision or take an action is uh, uh, something costly, which also about racial capitalism and how this system actually is live off uh, uh, of your, uh, uh, your, uh, your own surplus uh, work. Like I work, I save money, and then I have to spend it on this system to sustain it, uh, to allow the system to torture me and others over and over and over. That's the, that's the irony of the, the, the system. So we had to file a threat of a writ of mandamus, which means like a lawsuit. We sent that on November 4, 2020. So around the election time. Uh, so within a few weeks, they responded. They said they aren't going to make a decision. They want to bring us for a third interview. Uh, it was, if you remember, it's the surge of the pandemic in the whole area and everyone must be guaranteed. So uh, my lawyer called them, she was in Michigan and she said like she cannot come because she had to quarantine in, in, in when she arrived. So basically she can't make it. And there were instructions that we can do the interview at least like- uh, uh, By video. Through, by video uh, or anything that will maintain this basically safety and everything. We told them also like, uh, I have a baby girl. I can't risk the life of my baby. Like she cannot be vaccinated. She is uh, only barely one, one year old. And they said like, basically we must all come or basically I can, I will be either denied or they will, I can reschedule. So basically it's on me. It's the system is on me again. We had to go and we had to find an attorney within 10 years, uh, sorry, 10, 10 days. days, another attorney, another attorney who should be basically familiar with your case, work with you. So we went there and guess what? They didn't allow my wife and my daughter to, to come in. So it's basically just a show of uh, cruelty. And we occupied the three different rooms. One, I was in one, the attorney was in one and the asylum officer was in one. We spent two hours and uh, none of the questions basically were about the first or the second or any inconsistency is basically, uh, uh, I from reading the notification of denials, she was reading, uh, what was already prepared as a denial letter, but in the frame of a question. So this wasn't uh, an she, interview, this was basically notification of denial. Uh, yeah, but in the frame of interview. I so uh, how I knew uh, as an ethnographer, political science, a scientist who is doing political ethnography, I took careful note, like immediately after that, like field note. And I found like it's starking, like identical to like they, are, they were verbatim sentences and the notice of denial that were asked during the asylum interview. And uh, my attorney had to intervene because the officer was trying to force me to change my story that I told her about what happened 10 years ago. So she told him what you are trying to do. I told her like, basically you are trying to push me to change my story, which was then, actually very well documented and asked me about traumatizing experience about what I did 10 years ago. And then you, you wanna force me to change my story to go to your supervisor and tell him, hey, we found the inconsistency. Let's deny his case. Mm -hmm. uh, so and that's what happened. So mm -hmm. that's what happened exactly. Uh, so uh, and one the, and then you comment, were yeah. notified of, of the rejection a few months later. Yeah, so uh, 
right when the new head of uh, uh, Marikas, the new head of the DHS uh, was appointed, like the day after we received a notification through the USCIS website that a decision was made. Um, so we didn't expect a denial at all because the, the case is really well documented. And, uh, and yeah, it was one of the most horrible experience, the most... Uh, torturous experience that I ever had since I left Syria. The, mm -hmm. uh, the, the uh, yeah, the, the one comment about why I'm, I'm being denied is uh, they cited having a Syrian passport. Uh, I don't, like I did even screenshot, but so they said I have a Syrian passport issued in November 2012, which is wrong. Uh, it's uh, in, tw uh, in 2011. So they started just because I entered the country legally with my passport, which was issued 10 years ago and not renewed and expired as a, a reason to deny my asylum. Then they said, uh, I failed to prove uh, the Mogherabi test, which is basically four prong. I'm not going to go through detail, but basically I failed to prove that the Syrian regime has the capability and the intention to basically attack uh, uh, activists or, or so basically the burden of proving the crimes of the Syrian regime is on me uh, coming from the very same government that issued the worst sanctions on people and the government at the same time and they keep repeating protecting human rights we are imposing more sanctions more sanctions mm -hmm. and um, if, another ironical thing is the uh, department the USCIS and Department of Homeland Security decided that to redesignate the TPS temporary protection status for Syrians because it's not a safe country for civilians. In the notice of intent of delay, this and the final letter, they said there is no question. You are an activist. You no question. You continue your anti-government uh, statements and lectures. And uh, however, and that's the Kafka part. The uh, Syrian government didn't uh, try to harm me or contact me while I'm here in the United States. So they, so they send didn't send a death squad or uh, and, yeah. And, yeah. And it's uh, to to build on this. If you know uh, and remember, there's a, a travel ban on Syrians, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, no Syrian can get a visa to come here, but they expect a security uh, forces agent have to apply for a visa, learn English, apply for a visa, land a flight, and tell their officer, I'm going to persecute or harm uh, Basilio Zeno, who is living in Amherst. Could you give me a ride? And then he will come, persecute me, and then travel. Like It's a word that doesn't exist, mm. but they have so, it in writing. And and um, what, what has happened since you received your um, notice of rejection? So you, you will be... Uh, um, and that's one of the unique uh, uh, situations. The overwhelming majority uh, who will be denied asylum will be uh, 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 referred to the court. They will have a second chance. In my case, because I was doing my PhD, so I was in a valid F1 status, uh, I had to receive a notice of intent of denial or NOID. Uh, when we received this, we had 16 days, actually, in fact, it's 10 days, but 16 days to respond in a legal report. We collected a new evidence. I submitted a new statement, uh, 10 pages, single space. My attorney responded to all the factual mistakes that they had, cited court decisions that basically uh, refute their claims. And we submitted two testimonies from uh, top scholars. One is, uh, and I appreciate their efforts, uh, Lisa Wadeen and Stephen Hardman, 
uh, both of them actually they attested to diversity of my, what I said and 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 uh, and and wrote actually uh, a testimony to um, to support my claim on the one hand and actually to correct some of the mistakes that were cited in the country conditions report. Also, we submitted a, a letter of support from uh, senators like Senator Murky, Moulton. Uh, uh, and others uh, in support of my application. Nevertheless, like uh, uh, we on May 10th, we received a final denial insisting that basically since I wasn't contacted by the security of the Syrian government or they didn't harm me here uh, abroad. So basically I'm not eligible for asylum. And there's no further um, possibility of, of appeal or reconsideration. No, and that's the thing that uh, I think when you have other questions about uh, like challenges, it's beyond my case. It's it's something more systemic and more structural, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, you are uh, living under an authoritarian regime. Like basically, I never left <laughs> authoritarianism, so I had well, a, another form of authoritarianism. But here, it's because you have no rights. But that, that takes me to my next question, um, because in, in your Washington Post um, article, you also you characterize the U.S. asylum system as, in your words, uh, broken. Um, your own application, as, as you've just indicated, spanned three U.S. administrations, Obama, Trump yeah. and now uh, Biden. So is it your view that Trump broke the system and Biden has been slow or unwilling to fix it? Or are there more serious structural issues that go beyond the particular agenda of the politicians in power? Yeah, uh, that's a very important question as well because um, I, I saw some reactions to my, my op-ed by uh, basically uh, maybe supporters of Trump or, or, or curious people, let's say, like you were, you applied for asylum under Obama and got denied under Biden. So what Trump had to do with any of that? So that's the, the, the thing that people uh, are fixated on administration, but not the, uh, how, how the, the system fundamentally changed under Trump. It was uh, horrible and just before, but it's not just unjust for asylum seekers, but also for officers actually who want to abide by the law. Who would actually those apply who process the applications? Yeah, so mm -hmm. sometimes they are uh, pressured, and this came through some of my fieldwork interviews. Some felt they are pressured by their supervisor or the director of uh, ex asylum office to actually deny as many cases as as possible. Some and, actually. I'm sorry, have their... when, when you say that, uh, Basid, is is this something that became evident during the Trump years, or has that always been the case? No, no, uh, that's that's good thing. Actually, this is attested by also uh, data. There is a, a lawsuit by the ACLU Maine uh, because they found out that the majority of uh, uh, black asylum seekers actually there uh, had their uh, asylum application denied by the Boston Asylum Office. So there isn't any available data for the affirmative asylum cases, but there is a. a a website called the track that basically uh, file FOIA and traces the denial Freedom of information acts. Yeah. yeah, of based of, uh, on defensive asylum uh, cases and those who are reviewed by the court. With the affirmative is very difficult to get any information because they are very protected and there is no review uh, of the process. No, uh, you have no right to access the notes or the public or even law your lawyer, the notes, how they adjudicated X case or Y case. 
so uh, to, to respond to your question, so uh, the system is broken by design. And there is little interest in fixing, uh, and th this is relevant to the question of uh, 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 cruelty against racialized others in, in immigration. Like if I and a French or British uh, applicant applied for the same thing like this, we, the system within, it has an apartheid system within the US. Yes. So your application from someone from the Middle East will be adjudicated in a lengthy process because you are predefined as either a terrorist or as a threat to the national security of the country. Or if you are from uh, Latin America or Central America, you are uh, you have a bogus claim or, or a liar or a criminal or like basically they have categories they, they want to impose on, on this. But to, uh, to go a little bit back, so the United States like had a very long history that I'm not going to go through that, like the Chinese Exclusionary Act, the National Origin Act. But in 1980, under the uh, Carter administration, uh, the, there, uh, there was a change, which was basically the Refugee Act. Uh, Reagan, however, who came into power in January 1981, was uh, supporting the uh, fascist government of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. So how that played out, like Honduras, that was an interesting. Not, not yeah. So basically, hmm. yeah. Uh, so they they denied asylum claim because these people were fleeing from. Uh, brutality and war uh, crimes against humanity by the very same government supported by the United States. So they fled to the uh, uh, to the United States, go throughout Mexico, and then when they filed for asylum, the overwhelming majority were denied. As far as I remember, I think I have a statistic here. Like, uh, yeah, the approval rate for Salvadoran and Guatemalan asylum cases were under three percent in 1984. Why I'm, I'm raising that? Because when you compare that with the statistics from the Boston Asylum Office, which dropped actually from around 40% in December 2016 to suddenly around less than 8% in December. So that's December. the Trump effect. Yeah, that's the Trump effect. Yeah. Because they uh, definitely, there are different, let's say hypothetically, there are uh, policy memos or uh, secret directives that are inaccessible and cannot be accessed even if you are filing for FOIA. Like I right. did the FOIA, by the way, I got the results. The Freedom of Information uh, Act, yeah. Yeah, so, so they didn't give me anything uh, substantive, yeah. But I mean, the, the, this raises, I think also um, another broader uh, question. I mean, if we look at your personal experience, you've now been in the United States for nine years. Yeah. Um, you're fluent in English, you're an academic with a position, uh, at a prestigious university. The government of Syria is considered illegitimate uh, by Washington, not an ally like El Salvador or, or Honduras was in the 1980s. And you can plead your case in the pages of the Washington Post. I'm, and so I think the question is, if this is the outcome of your case, what does this tell us about the fate of so many others who encounter the US asylum system without any of the advantages and privileges um, that you have had, what needs to change? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for this question. That's a, uh, great. So uh, uh, that's the point actually why I published that piece in the op-ed, which is making me more vulnerable, right? Like there is no change. I know there is no change. Um, I didn't write that because I had any belief that 
basically uh, there will be sudden structural change that will change the outcome or the officer will be reviewed or I will be having like a fair process. No, I wrote that actually to show that uh, the system is far from, from uh, adjudicating cases based on the merit of these cases, which is a narrative that is embraced by uh, not just the Trump administration, but also many liberals who would say, oh, the system need reforms. Actually, you don't need reform. You need like fundamental restructuring, rebuilding the whole system. And there were, uh, there are, for instance, many secret uh, program. For instance, the something called CAR, the Controlled Application Review and Resolution Program, which uh, specifically target applicants from the Middle East and uh, uh, Southeast uh, Asia and Muslim applicants, Arab applicants. And this gave power, for instance, for uh, asylum officers and their supervisors to withheld cases in limbo forever. Nothing can compel them actually to make a decision. And how we knew about this secret memo, which was imposed illegally by the Bush administration without the approval of the Congress, is through a low class action lawsuits by the ACLU, like under the Obama. So it took many years to know what's going on. Why this case, X case, did my case, for instance, was withheld like uh, illegally before the writ of mandamus, like uh, because of CARB? I don't know. That's the thing. You don't know. But you see like people having their cases are uh, delayed uh, even after the interview, uh, if they are applying for a green card or even citizenship. So it's not just about asylum, it's about- Immigration you... more generally. Yeah, because mm -hmm. in this way, they, they create also a collective punishment mm -hmm. because we, we are fixated on the individual cases. But in fact, not just me or not just other asylum seekers, the whole families or relatives and friends of the applicant would be collectively punished. I didn't see my family in a decade. And now I had to start, I think about where I can find home and another country with the possibility of seeing my family one day. I had a baby didn't, uh, who didn't meet her, her grandparents and because mm -hmm. of both like the Syrian government policy, but at the same time, the racialized uh, uh, politics of the United States, which is what I call illegal violence at the same time. So I'm raising these, these issues and, uh, and sharing this, like I'm me being more transparent than the asylum office itself. I have nothing to hide. Like if I, if I didn't have a strong case, I'm not going to make myself actually uh, uh, visible to, to everyone else and accessible at the same mm -hmm. time. But I want this officer, uh, office to have transparency and others similar to what asylum officer had to wear. And some, in most cases, it's about credible fear, right? And credibility. And uh, it's in most cases, like the people have state-centric view and question the credibility of refugees and asylum seekers, but it's not the other way around. What is about, uh, what is about the, uh, the credibility of asylum officer? What is the, about the uh, credibility of Trump himself? or basically Stephen Miller, like Stephen Miller explicitly embraced like uh, white supremacy. Would I trust this person actually to uh, uh, restructure the whole system and believe that he has more credibility than asylum seekers? I tend to not believe that. So um, looking at it now and in, in more um, current and general terms, of course, about uh, five years ago, the, um, the Syrian refugee crisis very much dominated the global headlines. And now, as, as you mentioned earlier, we have the crisis in Afghanistan, which has once again reignited the immigration debate. In terms of both yes. um, 
questions of asylum and refugee admissions. What are your thoughts on this issue and what it tells us about the U.S. immigration system? Um, for example, we've we've seen um, reports of uh, of people who served in the Trump administration saying that part of the problem is that. Um, uh, Stephen Miller specifically shut down the whole application process for Afghans um, to be able to apply for, I think they're called special immigration visas um, during the past several years. And that's one of the issues that has contributed to the current crisis that we're seeing at uh, Kabul airport. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so it's a uh... First, I, I want to express my solidarity with the Afghani asylum seekers and refugees around the world who are, who are going through this uncertainty, which is in larger, larger aspect is the result of American imperialist war on both Afghanistan and Iraq, and actually waging war against uh, people of color. And uh, because the, even the debate here is fixated on how many uh, the, about the budget, how many billions of dollars that were spent there, and how many American soldiers were killed there, but nothing about actually the people who were directly affected by the uh, the this uh, uh, this war, like replace Taliban with the Taliban itself. Uh, so uh, this is relevant also to the challenges that the U.S. itself imposed on the processes of adjudicating cases and resettling as, uh, refugees in the United States, which we started with, right, the, the difference between asylum seekers and refugees. So uh, the process, like, uh, because they had to review every single application uh, between, like, one year to 18 months to five years, it depends, uh, before being resettled here, which means a clearance from the FBI, CIA, and all the other security-related department before being able to be resettled here. So they created a lengthy process. This is why they are, there are some calls. Why not actually resettle them in a third safe country? And then we can try to re-adjudicate uh, their case. Uh, I think that actually to deflect the responsibility of the United States in all this uh, 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 horrendous situation where uh, Afghan basically uh, found themselves alone and isolated with that. And also I want to uh, emphasize something else here that the cost of the destruction of Afghanistan exceed the two uh, decades before because it started with the Soviet because um, including actually the US did something, um, a few people are talking about that, but uh, they printed out uh, uh, school curriculum that were introduced to refugees and especially children with the money matched actually by Saudi Arabia at the time to impose uh, Islamist content that encouraged violence and actually erase anything about secular education. So basically they weaponized children for more than 10 years. Uh, that was taxpayer money. So it's, the responsibility is not just a couple of decades, it exceeds more than that. Uh, which is violation to the UNICEF, violation to, to uh, children's rights and others. Uh, what should be done is basically the US and policymakers should take responsibility, should be expediting the process of resettling uh, 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 refugees, not just from Afghanistan, eliminate many of the restrictions that are absurd, Kafka in its nature. For instance, if someone is fleeing, you cannot ask him why you you don't have X document or Y document if he's fleeing and his house is burned and destroyed. Like it's not a, a job application, it's an asylum application. But here they treat it as if you are applying for the perfect job application. The second thing, 
is make the asylum process for those uh, asylum seekers from Afghanistan here and others uh, very transparent, make it transparent. If there is an interview during the interview, uh, the uh, attorney should have access to the transcript and the notes of the officer. If you have nothing to hide, make it actually transparent. That's the thing. You can't make up lies, for, uh, and this is another thing. The, the uh, US, the Boston office claimed that I'm currently uh, an employee with the Syrian government. And they say it's fact. Mm -hmm. And that's a, like, it's not, it doesn't need actually any, any like I'm an employee with the, uh, I was an employee with the uh, UMass Amherst as a PhD uh, student and was teaching. And uh, so I had nothing to do with the Syrian government for, for a decade. And the only work that I did was at a museum for three months to document uh, artifacts, that's it, and that's not. So they said like, I'm currently uh, uh, like working with the same government. So how to fix this when someone actually making up lies and actually making up excuses? So the same applies to uh, asylum seekers and refugees from Afghanistan. The US should be held accountable to, what, uh, to the damage that it did to uh, all these countries, but also to the people uh, uh, who are seeking refuge in the United States, from the United States, and from its allies as well. Finally, uh, Basilius, um, what's next for you? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's the most difficult question. Uh, the, uh, the thing about asylum is it eliminates the sense of future from from uh, from your existence from your human condition so where do you see yourself five years from now I have no question I have no country uh, I cannot go back to Syria uh, the US decided to deny my uh, asylum my position is temporary so basically in a year I don't know where I will end up or whether I will find home one day in another country, that's a, a big question. But that's another question that we all, as refugees and asylum seekers, we, we share. Uh, the question of the future, being deprived from having a sense of certainty in life, uh, it's part of the cruelty of the process itself. Uh, it's to inflict maximum slow pain that will crawl over your body and soul until, um, and they'll actually get into you. But hopefully, and that's uh, to conclude with this, I feel I'm responsible. I will use my academic work uh, to advocate for the case of uh, asylum seekers to make sure that justice would be served in the United States and all other countries, that refugees and asylum seekers is not actually an identity that you are born with or you embrace. It's the conditions that create the, the and so I'm not ashamed of being a refugee in this world. I'm ashamed of the conditions that produce and sustain my, my refugees in the world. That's the thing that need to be fixed before actually uh, having any debate about refugees and asylum seekers. And thank you so much for having me. Vasily yeah. Zeno, thank you very much for sharing your views and insights on the connections and uh, wish you the very best as your case continues. Thank you, Moeen. And thank you for addressing this timely issue. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you.